Welcome to Parenting in the Trenches. I'm Karen Peters, a registered clinical counselor, and I'm a mom. We're getting real about all things family from a mental health perspective. So let's get to it. Hi, welcome to the last episode in this series on couples relationships. I'm pretty stoked today to be sharing my current obsession. Uh, It's probably because it applies to the stage of life that our own family is just about to enter into right now. For the first decade of our kids' lives, we are all pretty intensely involved from the moment-to-moment living. And then, you know, we get into this phase of space starting to open up, where adults in the family can reclaim and invest more of themselves. Maybe it's realizing that you now have just a bit of time on weekends for an independent hobby to bloom, or you can leave the house without having to pay someone to watch your kids, or maybe you are embarking on a new career direction or a related adventure. What I've also noticed is that when this space opens up a bit, we have the opportunity to reflect on where our couple relationship is at. Oftentimes, the intensity and the constancy of being needed by little humans who are dependent on you most of the time means that the couples have had to prioritize their roles as co-parents and more oftentimes than not have shelved their identities as people in romantic love with one another, where the passion and the desire still live themselves out in real ways between you. Do you feel me? If you've got kids in the single-digit age range, you're still in the thick of it. And if you have teens with really busy lives but who still require things like rides, financial management, safety monitoring from time to time, and all that jazz, you are not in the end zone yet. But you are getting a taste of pockets of time that are just for you. Maybe you're on the verge of empty nesting or have just arrived there and you're doing a full-on spring cleaning revamp on the relationship with your partner. But I'm thinking that no matter what stage you're in, discussing ways of reclaiming and sustaining your love relationship while still being parents is valuable. First off, I just want to say that our culture, our Western culture, has some pretty skewed expectations about the spark or heat in a love relationship after we have kids. People feel all sorts of pressure to keep up with these expectations. And ironically, if anything is going to kill the love buzz, it's pressure. Esther Perel is a psychotherapist known around the world for her transformational work with couples, and recently she has released a new course for couples wanting to rekindle their desire for one another. I took that course so that I can share some of her key nuggets of wisdom with clients that I work with, and I tell ya, it has been super effective. Her approach can literally revive connections between partners who have lost that love and feeling after children or having fallen into patterns that leave them feeling disconnected or bored or just flat. If you want to rediscover your passion for one another and you don't know how, you have joined the right conversation. 
Esther's Rekindling Desire course covers a whole lot, so there's no way I'm going to cover all of that here. I would encourage you, though, to go check out her course for yourself. And if you're finding today's topic relevant for you, the link is going to be in the show notes. There are two key concepts that lay the foundation for understanding why couples who are close can still experience a lack of desire for one another. I always wondered why a couple could have all the markers of deep trust, safety, commitment, and still struggle so much with sexual connection and intimacy. And it seems contradictory. But here's what she had to say about relationship between comfort and desire. Comfort in friendship requires closeness that is based on things like stability, safety, predictability, and knowing one another really well. But desire and passion require creativity, a hunger for what you don't yet have, but you really want, and risk-taking. Where couples thrive and find that sweet spot for strong and full intimacy is where those two meet. You need trust and secure bonds to create a safe place in order to explore your wants and risk a sense of abandon. Light bulb moment for me. Probably an understatement, actually. More like a football field of blinding floodlights. I love how Esther demystifies eroticism. So I'm just going to pause there for a second. When I say the word eroticism or erotic pleasure, what reaction do you have? Does it make you uncomfortable, excited, curious, or cautious? When I hear this word, I automatically think of sexual desire, but what's actually all included in an erotic experience is so much more than that. She explains how the actual definition and realm of eroticism is much broader than how we express it sexually. Yes, sexuality is one form of expression, but it is not the only one. Eroticism is a way of being that opens ourselves up to experience any sort of pleasure at all. It's about being alive and engaged. It's about being connected to your own body. So when you step outside and notice how the wind streams across your skin and gives you a sense of fresh aliveness, that is eroticism. When you taste food or drink in a way that makes you perk up and notice how amazing it feels in your mouth and how incredibly delicious it is, that is eroticism. If your body and senses are engaged in a pleasurable experience, that is eroticism. And this matters. I want to insert a little something sciencey here. When our physiology, our body, is in a state of high stress, we cannot be in a state of engaging in or experiencing pleasure. When our limbic systems are in chronic use, our brain centers for being connected in relationship, being present in pleasure, our ability to be creative, and is necessarily turned off for a period of time because we're needing that physiological energy to attend to staying safe and surviving that stress. Now, if I say relaxation and stress are in opposition to one another, you'd say, uh, yeah, 
duh. We get that. And yet, we can acknowledge that when parenting young kids, we are often in a high-stress state. But we still hold on to this pressure and expectation of ourselves that the minute that the kids are in bed, we should be able to be turned on and get all frisky. If you are capable of doing this, I would call you superhuman. Most of us are not wired to have light switches that work in on-off positions. Most of us have what I point to as a dimmer switch. It takes time for our nervous systems to come back to a state of calm, where we're capable of accessing parts of our brain that can become free, curious, creative, and excited. Those parts have been turned off and they need dimming up again after the stress has passed. Stress has to have a way to leave the body through movement, connection, expression. It needs an outlet. And that is why you're going to find that exercise, for instance, is so helpful if you're an anxious person. If you are flying from one stressful parenting task to another and and the creativity, energy, and desire you still have available to you is poured directly into your kids, no wonder sexual intimacy plummets during this stage of living family life. But great news, you're not broken. While it is normal, it does still kind of suck. So if you want to keep threads of that alive and well to any kind of degree, if putting it fully on hold until empty nesting is not your plan, you do need to work at it. And while putting in all the work to keep the passion alive in your relationship might improve things, I think it's really important to realize that the realistic goal is not to live out your couple's relationship exactly how it was before you had kids. Again, this might sound obvious, but why then do we beat ourselves up for not being able to have that wildly passionate escapade while managing the constant needs of our kids? So, when you make the choice to do all the things to prioritize your couple's relationship, please do walk with an understanding for one another and grace for yourself when it doesn't hit the ceiling like it used to. Okay, so let's talk practical. What then does it mean to keep your passion and desire alive and well throughout the course of the stressful parenting stage? Number one. Your body needs to be able to be present in the moment and open to noticing sensations. If you don't already practice mindfulness on a regular basis and you're a Netflix subscriber, I'm pretty excited about this news because Headspace has uh, added a season of episodes that will guide you through meditation. And it's awesome. It'll give you a sample of what I'm talking about. Find concrete ways to ground yourself often. Help your body rehearse a state of being regulated. So here's an example. If you're like me, you adore a hot bath. Half of it's probably because it's the one space in my home that nobody will disturb me if I lock that door. 
you can be in that hot bath and be planning your day tomorrow, revisiting what you wish you had said to that annoying colleague at work yesterday, or you can be in the moment, present, noticing the pressure of the water around you, the warmth entering your skin, the scent of the soap, the sound of the water gently shifting in the tub, and that is being mindful. It's not as hokey pokey as you think. And when you are mindful, you allow yourself to connect with your physical self. You're present with you. Number two, you need to spend time in the headspace of imagination. This is where wanting happens. It's the anticipation of things, the lack of certainty, the room we have to be curious about what could be. Being playful, spontaneous, exchanging knowing glances, asking novel questions, finding a creative outlet, learning new things, approaching life with curiosity and interest. Find ways to setting up things to anticipate and look forward to. This makes space for a sense of longing, an ingredient we need for desire to exist. Number three, you need to own your own wanting. Esther talks a lot about this, and I so value this concept. How many of you live in serving others mode so often that you no longer know how to receive care from others or enjoy a moment? And maybe when you dare let yourself once in a while, you end up feeling guilty for it. Like it's selfish. Well, welcome to the club. We have millions of members here. The reality is that when you have kids, you are in service mode much of the time, making it hard to also acknowledge and meet your own wants and needs. A little secret here. Our culture contributes to the idea that if we are quote-unquote good parents, we are wholly sacrificial and 100% available to meeting all our kids' needs. We have lost the previous philosophy of it taking a whole village to raise a child. We no longer have villages. We have last resort paid childcare. Setting up a default expectation that leaves all of us, parents, kids, and abandoned villagers, isolated and dry of connection. There's no reciprocity in this kind of relationship, in the bigger picture. That kind of support is missing. But that is not something that we can conquer in this one hour. (laughs) But it is worth being aware that it contributes to our beliefs about our parent roles as individuals. Esther talks about owning our own wanting. And this concept allows us to feel good sometimes, to soak it in to welcome it and have gratitude for it. Do you even know what you want anymore? When asked about what feeds them, what makes them come alive, what makes them who they are, apart from parenting, moms in therapy will go blank or express a sense of feeling lost in that question. They don't know what makes them come alive as a developing individual. 
Esther does this simple but powerful exercise in her course where she asks couples to just sit next to each other and offer pleasurable contact to one another in a very basic way, like holding out your arm and taking turns stroking it gently. People learn a lot by experimenting with this simple gesture. What do they feel when they're in the role of receiving touch? Do they resist? Do they feel bad that they're doing this? The time's being spent on them. Do they soak it in and enjoy it? And what comes up when they are the givers of touch? Which role comes more easily and which one needs more practice? Number four, break routine that comes with parenting and plan couple time. And when you do, invest your creativity. Do not default to easy and convenient choices. I get that sometimes you need this, but also make way for the novel, the exciting, the one-off. Think outside the box and make things feel special because that is when you can ignite anticipation and imagination. Building the mystery around the activity helps foster what you want to get out of it, and it creates the atmosphere for desire to show up. Esther calls this the antidote to responsibility, which is the stage you're otherwise always in as a parent. If you're at the stage in your family where kids are heading out the door more or less in charge of themselves, and it's your time to reforge the couplehood, You do not need to attempt to recreate what you had when you started. You have grown up yourself. You have changed. And you get to rediscover yourselves and one another. There's a ton of opportunity here to come alive. To assume that you do not know every detail as well as you think you do about your partner. Get curious. Ask new questions, invite adventure, look for ways to try new things with one another just for the sake of fun. Take risks and hold hands while you take them. Enjoy finding out about each other's interests, new hopes and dreams for the years ahead, and play with your imaginations about possible intersections for connection in this new phase. And activate things. Do not just dream but go do them. Take steps into the unknown together in intentional ways. If you have listened in on the first three episodes of this particular series in the podcast, you'll remember that the Gottman approach to strengthening the couple's bonds in part happens through what he calls love maps. And that love maps are constantly under construction and redesign if they're working the way they should. There are points, though, in the couplehood journey where this becomes exercisable in a real meaningful way, where big pivot points in the relationship can happen. And when you're approaching that phase where your kids don't always need you, this is a great time to be revamping your love maps. You can just add that tool to the revamping toolkit for this stage in the relationship. The wear and the tear of parenting is super real. But I've also been so encouraged by Esther Perel's wisdom around how to regrow desire in relationships where it has truly felt lost. 
that I have a new vision of what's possible for couples if they're willing to trust it and do the work. I'm going to leave you with some sample thought-provoking questions in the show notes taken directly from Esther's incredible work. Check it out if you're interested. Thanks for joining me in this series on couples relationships, and I hope it's been encouraging in the way of connection. Next week, we kick off a new series called Kids And, where we're going to look at a number of really complicated, layered issues, but important topics that we have to address with our kids. So I hope you'll join me there too. Thanks for spending time with me today. Remember to check out the show notes for related resources. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram, or you can also subscribe to my online learning page at my.thrive-life forward slash LRL series, where you'll get updates, extra tools for your toolkit. And if there's a topic that you want me to cover in this podcast, please shoot me a message. I would love to hear from you. Shoulder to shoulder with you, knee deep in this mud. I will see you back here next time.